Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Before we get started today, wanted to do a quick shout out to Cynthia and Andrew. Thanks for your recommendations on those deep dive Barbara Stanwyck movies. Zoe and I are going to be checking those out. And for all the kind emails. We really appreciate it. Yeah, love you guys. Welcome back to the life and films of Val Luton, visionary craftsman working on low-budget horror films with RKO Productions. I would go back and watch, listen to part one because we're going to pick up right where we stopped. We stopped last time with uh, the, his first film for RKO and his first film ever as a producer, uh, Cat People. Um, so listen to that, and then we're moving right into uh, I Walk With a Zombie, which is his second film. So yeah, I Walk With a Zombie, Val Luton very slyly took a literary classic, Jane Eyre, and loosely had it adapted into a zombie movie. First of all, I think this is the richest film, most interesting film, most entertaining film. It's my number one choice and your number one choice. So if you only watch one Val Luton film, this is the one. And I really think that the underlying theme here that you can really feel is that the, the devastation wrought by colonialism this takes place in the West Indies somewhere. It's a sugar plantation. Uh, and it's very, very interesting because um, there is, a, again, if you listened to the last episode, we talked about Tom Conway, the handsome Tom Conway. He's the Rochester figure. And his uh, wife is ill, quote unquote. Basically, she's like, a, she's a zombie. And she um, needs a caretaker. So he hires a nurse uh, who's played by Francis D., a very beautiful, be- very beautiful actor. I, I, I think she's one of the most beautiful that they had at the time. Although she's not extremely dynamic or memorable, but she's quite, quite lovely. She does a very good job here. So she comes from the mainland to take care of, uh, I'll keep on calling him Rochester. <laughs> that wasn't his name in the f- film. I can't remember what it was. I don't either. But I'll just call him Rochester. To take care of J- Rochester's wife. And she enters this world, this world of voodoo and magic and this the absolute pinnacle of a culture that is steeped in the folklore and the basically the unconscious the subconscious mind Um, and then there are the white people who are there the colonizers who are the business people agriculture Um, the rochester character's white uh, mother is a doctor and so she's She's trying to bring medicine to the people, the Western medicine to people. Um, and the whole function of the whole movie sort of looks at how the, the forces of belief and magic and the realm of mystery and mythology can overturn the power of Western science, I think, is what, what it's saying. Yeah, I agree with that. And that that is the theme that I kind of see in a lot of the films. And I don't really know do you, if you have any feeling that that might have come from Val Luton's personal life. Sort of the interest in like magic and well, he was he was told the fairy stories and the myth and the legend of his uh, Russian homeland uh, as a child, so it probably made a very big impact on him. He he never seemed like a very practical person. 
and he lived in his artistic mind so perhaps it just he just felt a resonance with it i don't you know i'm not a val Luton expert so it is hard for me to say exactly but this uh this film is very very funny in that uh, Luton was handed this title and he's just like oh my god what am i going to do with this i mean it's just ah so it almost redoubled his creative efforts to to sidestep it and also the the thing that the studio could do is they could assign people to you to work with you so it isn't like he had a free hand to choose whose writer was so he was assigned uh this writer his name is kurt siodmak and he is the writer who uh had written the wolfman over at universal so again they're trying to shove this formula down his throat so siodmak does do a version of it and Val Luton hates it. I mean, to be expected. And so he rewrote it and he wrote it himself and he got other writers in to work with him. So he ended up getting the film he wanted. A fantastic film. Very rich. I would kind of wanted to go over, basically, the, the plot is, is very simple. Is once this woman gets here, she um, begins to see weird things happening. She and the Rochester character fall in love, but he's married. But the main thrust of it is that behind all of this emotional stuff, there is the power of voodoo and the fact that this his wife is bewitched and also the fact that um, his mother, who is the doctor, trying to she's really trying to help these people in her, I don't know if you want to say her colonialist point of view, but what she does is she tries to harness the powers of the voodoo and the imagery of voodoo in order to get people to believe and then to do the things that would be healthy for them by pretending to be a priest, you know, a hidden priest. They can't see her, so they don't know that it's her. And healing people through, supposedly through magic, but in fact she's giving them medicine or good advice and that kind of thing. Ultimately what happens is the wife ends up dying. She doesn't she doesn't jump off the house while it's burning, but she ends up drowning in the ocean and she's washed away and the lovers can be together. So that's, that's you know that's coming. But the interesting part is the voodoo. There's also a subplot where uh, the Rochester has a younger brother and who is in love with the wife and they end up expiring together as lovers should and that's that's that. But there's a there was something else about the mother? Yeah, so the mother is the doctor and she's kind of administering medicine to like the native population by pretending to be a voodoo practitioner. Um, but then at the end it's revealed that she's actually the original one who cursed Jessica, the wife, to being a zombie. So even though she didn't believe in the the magic, she felt herself possessed and then cast this curse on her. So the movie itself is kind of it's it, it's taking a perspective that's not like a hard western medical scientific perspective and saying like there's something more subversive going on i guess how western thought and rationalism is overwhelmed by the depth of the subconscious that's one layer of the film that's the story and and what's going on with the white characters and then underneath uh, we see throughout the film the the life and the uh the power of the black people living there who were brought over from Africa for the most part. One of the very earliest scenes, it's very interesting to me, is Frances D, the nurse, she's coming and she's being driven to the plantation by a black driver and they're going along and he starts to talk about his family or his history and he talks about how they were brought over and what happened to them and the suffering, the suffering of the people. And she's kind of like, 
she doesn't register on her she doesn't get it but and i think that the film first of all is showing how inured the white population is to the suffering of the people who work for them and who are the foundation of their economy and there also um, is a opportunity for the filmmakers to get to say something about colonialism and the um, use of well, they're not slaves at this time, but the use of um, enforced labor of some sort and, and having that economic and social divide between the two groups of people. And they, so they really do speak to it. I mean, it's interesting because they do talk about the, or they show the voodoo culture, and they got real voodoo dancers, people who really were of that culture, to come and do the dances. Right, yeah, that's one thing I really appreciate. It's not just people, like, either Pretending. doing some research and, yeah, and, like, writing a scene that they're like, let's make it, Vo- like quote unquote voodoo-y or whatever. Right. And, and I have to remember at this time, this is 1942 still, so segregation was still big time. And um, they also, and, and segregation, even though, you know, in real life, of course, couldn't use the same bathrooms in a lot of places, not everywhere, but, but certainly in the South, and all of that physical segregation, but also in the arts, you couldn't have a black person in a film who was not in some way subservient or a comic effect. You didn't, you, you rarely had someone who was a person in their own right, a real person. And that's one thing I really give to Val Luton. He, in every film, he tried to squeeze in or sneak in somebody who was a real person, someone you could relate to and, and respect. Uh, for example, in Cat People, there is a waitress who is a black actor and uh, it acts like a normal person who's doing her job and is you know efficiently doing her job and is acknowledged by the other characters is and greeted and and so forth so it's it's little enough but in i walk with the zombie you see a lot of it because these people are part of the main culture and so he speaks to it you see through the experience of one of the other main characters played by Teresa Harris who's one of my favorite actors she is one of those actors that had she not been black she probably would have been a star she's a very good actor she's pretty she's not really gorgeously beautiful but she's very nice looking but she has a vivacity she reminds me of like a Jean Arthur or a Bonita Granville um, she's just she's just got so much life in her and you will if you if you notice her in this film you'll and you watch other old films from this period you'll start to see her she was in a film with Marlena Dietrich uh, the Bell of New Orleans or the flame, flame the New flame Orleans. of New Orleans and she plays the maid because that's what they get to play but she's got lines and she's got a personality and she you know she really has some input into that film and so Luton loved her and wanted to give her job whenever he could and give her you know a good part something that she could really do and here she's really got a very good part she has a lot of lines uh, you really see the world through her experience there's no reason for them to show the her grief over the illness of her nephew and and the fear of her sister giving birth and her her tears there's no there's no need in the story to show that but it's there and it makes it a very rich experience to see the life of this community yeah she's great and i i I can't even think of the things i've seen her in but we've seen her a lot in our studies and through this period is very familiar yeah yeah yeah, she was uh, she was in a movie with Jean Harlow, uh, where uh, no, not Jean Harlow. Um, well, she probably she wasn't probably in a movie with Jean Harlow with uh, I mean Barbara Stanwyck, where she is the uh, sort of the maid, but she's also kind of the friend, kind of the 
confidant. So she's still lower in status, but she and, and Stanwyck's character are bonded and they stick up for each other. And doesn't she, yeah, isn't she in the movie with Jean Harlow? I might cut this out, but she's in a movie with Jean Harlow where they like run away together. Yeah. Okay, I'm remembering that too. Yeah. Yeah. She's definitely a, a figure uh, who, who was probably as successful as someone could be at that period you know, until, you know, someone like Lena Horne came up. And, and even then, Lena Horne was not, well, I don't know that she was the greatest film actor, but she was a great singer and very, very beautiful. And so, but there were a lot of people who were very good who didn't get the opportunity to to shine but so watch for Teresa Harris on this she has uh she has one very funny bit where she can't control this horse quote unquote and she's uh and so then the what's very funny is that Francis D goes over and says oh well this is how you need to handle the horse to get it to go where you want to go and she's explaining it to her and and (laughs) Teresa Harris basically says oh yeah I know I've been trying to control this horse for the last hour because she's trying to stay outside the window so she can hear what people are doing so she's pretending that she can't really control the horse so Frances D walks away and she just goes right back to, <laughs> to what she was doing. <laughs> that was a very funny bit. So she's one character. And the other character that, that we really need to highlight as well is Sir Lancelot. And that is his stage name. That obviously wasn't his real name. But Sir Lancelot was a super, I've never even heard of him before, super famous uh, musician, a calypso musician. He was, I mean, he had hit records he he toured the country he had a band you know it was it's really very interesting and he ended up he's uh, a reoccurring Val Luton actor yeah about two like he's in about three or four movies mm-hmm. he's not a really great actor I think it's it's just that he was a great musician and a lot of times he'll sing a song and I think Val Luton really liked him and wanted him to have his chance and um, he there's a song in the film about the family woe and shame to the family and he's writing about the fact that the younger brother loved the wife and that the Rochester character's wife and the Rochester character was mean to her and cruel. And, and basically they kind of hint that maybe she isn't bewitched so much as she was driven mad by his cruelty to her. And uh, so he sings this song. It's very eerie throughout the, the film. Well, he actually composed that song. In fact, he had composed it before the film and he had written it about his own family. Oh, wow. And he changed the words, you know, for the film to make it more about the film. But essentially, he had been sent by his family, and they'd saved up money to send him to the United States to study to be a doctor. And he had gone to school, and he went for a while, but he it just wasn't his calling. It wasn't right for him. He was, in, in his heart, a musician. And so he went out, and he went on the road, and he worked hard, and he became a famous musician, and he became rich. He became quite quite wealthy and so he was uh, finally then went back to his home and with all this money and he was going to like show to his family and so see I made it and you know give give them gifts and whatever they you know house whatever he was going to do and they wouldn't speak to him they never his father would never speak to him again and they did somehow that kind of success was not acceptable that's wild to look at your child who's successful in whatever they ended up doing and not be like all right you were right. I, I was I wrong. See. Yeah, that's yeah. quite a story. He was one who connected Val Luton to the real, the, the voodoo dancers and singers because he knew that that was part of his culture. And so he, he helped him make it more authentic, which I appreciate because he really gave him some input into the whole way that the culture is depicted. The other thing is, is if you want to go on uh, to YouTube or whatever, or Spotify even, you can find so many covers of that song. I mean, all kinds of people doing it. Um, 
I forget, I'm trying to think, was it Frank Sinatra or somebody I was listening to, but Bing Crosby, somebody, somebody who was so not Trinidadian yeah, <laughs> was singing that, you know, it was a very, very popular song. It's very catchy. Then just like one other little tidbit about the, the actors that I enjoy. The woman who played um, Tom Conway, who was the actor who played Rochester, um, his mother, who's the doctor, and they make her up to look older and everything. She's, she, her name was Edith Barrett. I think it's kind of cool to know that at this time, she was married to Vincent Price, mm. who we like a lot. And she was actually three years younger than the man who was playing her son. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> Isn't that funny? She was only 35 in this movie. That's wild. I mean, she's she certainly doesn't seem very old, but she also, she pulls it off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. she does. She pulls off the role and they, you know, they do makeup on her to age her a little bit. But you kind of know, well, she's a younger person playing older but you doesn't you can't tell that she's actually three years younger i thought that was very very funny and then um the film ended up again smash hit again they want val luton to roll right of course right in because the shooting schedules on these are really short they want him to roll right into the next film but still there's still resistance from the powers that be when he was making this film they said they wanted him to follow current universal successful formula and here's the formula as i under it has to be like a once upon a time tale i think that this one qualifies because i think what val luton did is he took that he says okay just like with the title okay watch me do it and see how i do it and he will always do it in a way that's different and that that's his way Uh, there has to be believable characterizations absolutely i believed everybody in this film Unusual technical effects. <laughs> it's really funny. So the unusual technical effect in here is that the voodoo dancer is calling this doll, and the doll is supposed to be the effigy of the wife, and he's trying to pull her to the ceremony. And so he takes the doll, and he's singing and dancing, and he's drawing by magic the doll to him. Well, the doll is on a string, and it's being pulled along on a string. Yeah. You know, and so, as if by magic, but is, and then that's making her come to the uh, ceremony. And I think that that's just really funny. They just used the string, and that was their special effect. That was very funny. <laughs> There's really not much anything else that's a special effect. No, no, not really. And I, but it's very good. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I I love that scene. And then that there has to be a secondary character of weird appearance. Mm-hmm. And so that would be this one t- very tall, gangly um, Haitian man. I think this is supposed to be in Haiti or West Indies. I don't know. And he has very, very exothalmic eyes, which are the kind that really bug out a lot. And he just carries himself in a very rigid, stiff, zombie-like way. So he's a very unusual-looking character. And scary, kind of creepy, too, if you run into him in the middle of a cornfield or in the middle of a sugarcane field at midnight. Um, and then they're also that they, um, they said it must confess at the beginning that the show is a horror film. Now I'm not quite sure what that is. Maybe that's the little prologue where, you know, they talk, they do talk at the beginning about that. It's going to be scary when she gets sent on her job. Yeah. Hmm. And then a pish tush character and a pish tush character is like the doctor. It's some Western scientific Hmm. mind who goes pish tush. That's ridiculous, you know. In the um, in the first one, in the Cat People, it's obviously Tom Conway's psychiatrist, and so it's always this good fish tush. Um, and then it and then it somehow has to be based on pseudoscience, and so not only pseudoscience. I guess he also uses like voodoo and 
um, you know, mythic and folkloric elements is that element. So, so where did you get this list from? Did you... Uh, th- th- this is the list they gave as what the universal formula was. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, I just think that's interesting. But you wanted to talk about uh, the at- atmospheric things, which are very, very interesting and powerful. Although I do, I will note, we talked about it just a second ago, about what happens with the mom's arc and how it turns out that she actually did use magic to curse Jessica. So he... In, in um, view of Valutin being trying to subvert or fighting against the formula they give him, she's both the pish-tush character, but then she becomes like a magic user. Right. So like, yeah, I think that's very good. Yeah. Yeah, this this one this one is just one that's going to be like burned into my psyche just based on atmospheric impression alone. Like even if I didn't, if I wasn't interested in, I don't know, post-colonial theory or loving Jane Eyre or like whatever just appreciating the performances like it just I would just remember it because the feel is so it's really gothic it fits a lot of that genre but it's very unique too yeah I think you're right it's the texture of the film the energetic texture of the film that that is brought about by the pacing the uh, cinematography and the sound design Mm mm-hmm and there's, and there's some iconic images, like there's that statue that's in the garden that has the arrows sticking out of it, I think. San, or, San Sebastian. Yeah. And then there's the scene in the sugarcane field, which I really think is the centerpiece of the film in terms of atmosphere and cli- climactic tenseness or suspense. And, and what happens is they walk through the cornfield and they pass like some skulls and some creepy stuff. And then they run right into that guy uh, that you described earlier, who is... He's, I guess he's the titular zombie in the movie, even though you think it's well, Jessica, you're yeah. not sure. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Because I, I think that the titular zombie is Jessica. Because you know, nobody walks with him, but they walk uh, with she Jessica. She does along the beach at the end. She oh, walks okay. with him. Okay. So it, it could be either one, really. Good point. Um, and really, it doesn't matter because he's not trying to follow the title anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's walking and there's zombies. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Um, but what I... I I guess the thing that I appreciate about that is that he does use this man and he uses his physical characteristics, his very unusual Mm -hmm. and startling appearance that people wouldn't have been used to or wouldn't have seen. And it does create a shock value. Um, And it's not a special effect. It's really what the man looks like. But I feel like that even that character is treated humanistically. Mm -hmm. Like he's not there Especially because that zombie is integrated into the society that he's in. Yeah, he's not a monster. He's not a monster that walks around and terrifies people. Part of his frighteningness, I mean, it is intended. It's also, a lot of the fright comes from the fact that, that Francis D, being this white person, coming through in this, to her, foreign exotic land, she's running and she, in the middle of the night, she runs into somebody who's a good foot taller than her who's super skinny, who's standing there silently just staring at her, not saying a word, not reacting. And so the camera takes her point of view, which is therefore that creates the quote-unquote horror when she stops and she looks up at him and the camera is down low and looking up at him and the light is shining on him in a certain way, like like moonlight, so it makes it eerie. But it's not, it's not like Frankenstein or something where it's the being that is scary. It's the circumstance that that really is mostly scary because this being, this person, never does anything He's to hurt not anybody. Threatening throughout the entire film, I think maybe he picks someone up at one point because he got sent to go get them. You right, know, and right. He, like, carries them. Right, and that's pretty much it. So there's no no real um, actual harm, and I think he's sent by the mother, isn't he? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> so I find that pretty fascinating that he manages to do that to create 
emotional responses but it, yeah it's not like rep- it's not repulsion it's not yeah about that person yeah 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 so it's not a monster and i i, I like that a lot and because nobody's a monster in this which is right yeah p- pretty pretty interesting yeah so it's it's really a very fine film on, on so many levels the way it deals with race and colonialism and agency and i mean because we could you know we don't want to go on and on and make this podcast 50 million hours long but there is something about agency here because the wife completely lacks any kind of agency at all. And was that caused by her husband's treatment? Is it madness, genetic kind of thing, or a chemical thing? Or, you know, we really, really don't know. So everyone is kind of floating and searching around in these dark places. I think it's very fascinating how they create that texture. There's a great scene where when Frances D first gets there, she first bonds with the younger brother because he's charming and he's really nice, but he's also an alcoholic. And they, uh, one day they're wandering out and he's showing her around and he ends up drinking and they stay too late in the village and it's getting dark and everybody's gone and he's passed out on the table and she's just sitting there and she doesn't know what to do. And all of a sudden you hear Sir Lancelot singing, Woe and shame to the family. And he's singing the lyrics about, and about the younger brother loved the wife. And he's singing the, and this is how she learns what the dynamic is. And he's coming creeping. And, and he himself, again, he's not scary. He's a kind of a dumpy little guy, you know, normal looking with a guitar. But the way he's singing and the way they have him just slowly stroll around the edge of the, the pillar. So there's something very threatening about it, even though there is no overt threat at all. And so I, I found that, that that that's the kind of scene that creates the tissue of tension and horror and suspense in this film. In the cat people, it's the fear of the power of female autonomy. And maybe what this is, is the fear of the autonomy of oppressed people. You know, because here's, it's dark, it's unknown, all of the, the voodoo and the culture. And it has a lot of power, as the film is showing, more power over the Western rationality and, and mechanism or whatever. And so here's this guy. He's steeped in it. He's part of it. He's the voice of it. And he's coming out. And it's just his mere appearance of going. It's like looking into your own subconscious is terrifying. Yeah. And they fall into another dimension for that that moment. Yeah. And then it brings it back up again. And that's what you're and I think that's what you're saying about those other scenes that you were talking about. Mm-hmm. Those are places where it kind of drops down into it. And then when we're dealing with the main plot line where we're with the Western characters, we're back up you know, back up at the usual movie treadmill. We're at the top of people doing their lines and, and delivering and we're getting plot and story, which is all tends to be more intellectual. And, right. You know. Yeah. So I think this is the most successful of Luton's because he, he's always trying to do this. But this is one where he does it 100%. Cat people, almost 100%. Really good. Maybe even 100%. Yeah, I know there are a lot of people that would say cat people is better or more yeah. their favorite or whatever. And I'm not sure what exactly it is about this. I think it's just the absolute lyricism of the atmosphere and the visuals and everything that really yeah. do it for me for this one. And also for me, it, it, it's also the holisticness that it's so, it's full and it's multifaceted and it looks at this from various ways, whereas Cat People is, is more simple. It's great, but it's, it, it isn't as multifaceted. It's also inter- more interpersonal because it's just about this girl yeah. and her husband and the other woman who's involved, whereas this one is, it is kind of an exploration of like a society or yeah. a system. 
I agree. Yeah. And and done it so well. Okay. we got to stop talking about, you know, about this movie, but please see it. It's so great. Val Luton is starting to get into the politics of the situation and the, working with the studio and all the various pressures that are on him and don't spend money on that. Oh, no, you can't do this. Oh, come on. We want to see a big leopard face here. Come on. You know, what, what the hell are you doing? You know, all this people constantly criticizing him and trying to pull him back. And Charles Kerner was supporting him, but was limited. I mean, he was not the top boss. Um, so the way Val, one of the ways Val Luton handled this which I think was was really um, hilarious is that, according to his son, Val Luton Jr., and other people, he had this thing he called his dog puke tie. And it was a tie that was so ugly, it was hideous, and he would only wear it for meetings with people whom he despised and loathed. So, never said anything, he just went into the meeting with this sort of really subtle... Passive-aggressive. Just a middle finger. Middle finger of this ugly, I, I guess it was just hugely, I, I, I went online, I tried to find if there was a picture of it or something, but there wasn't. But, uh, and so, and people comment about, God, he has a terrible taste in ties. Whenever, you know, you did a comment thing, you go, uh-oh, Val Luton had <laughs> So he would have to go and have these meetings. I thought it was really, really funny. Um, I wish I could know what it was like. Oh, I know, I want to see it so bad. I probably would love it. <laughs> And uh, I guess it was silk, and it had uh, just outrageous hues, particularly for a man at that time. It was like pink. It had a lot of pink in it, and it was paisley. And I guess it was really pretty, pretty <laughs> awful for the time. Uh, and I, lo- I love this. Um, Val Luton Jr. also said this about his dad. This is how he described his father. He was a prime neurotic. There's no doubt about that. But as long as he was working, he could keep it under control. There is a journal entry that he wrote about a dream he had when he was on a train of being pursued by a cat. He did not like cats at all. He did have a strange relationship to cats. He gave ours a wide berth because it had a habit of biting off the heads of ground squirrels for him as a trophy. We ate alone those nights. Wow. Yeah. He was really repulsed by that. that. That's how affected he was by it. So it's interesting that he has uh, two movies. Uh, about cats. We're going to come up to the next one. This is the third film called The Leopard Man. Right. And ostensibly not his fault. You know, he didn't choose the subject, but... Well, again, they're trying to get him to do The Wolf Man, but with cats. Right. (laughs) They had a thing about that. Okay. So now The Leopard Man, they want to see a leopard man in this. And uh, I also will note this is also starring Dynamite, the Black Panther from Cat People. Val Luton, he no longer was going to work with Turner because Turner was bumped up to the A-list and should note that Luton was actually offered the chance to bump up to the A-list and to become an A-list producer. And they said they would give it to him. And he said, well, that's cool. I would love that. But I need to be able to choose my director. I need I need to be able to choose Mark Robeson as my director. Now, he had worked with Mark Robeson in these last two films as a, uh, a writer and uh, you know assistant and so forth. But Robeson had never actually directed a film. And so Luton wanted to bump up to the A-list, and, and he had promised Mark that the next film um, where he needed a director, that Mark would get to direct it. He didn't like to go back on his promises, and so he told the studio, and the studio said, no way. We are not giving you an A-list picture with an untried director. We're just not going to let you. He said, but you can count on me. And, and he had turned in these two blockbusters. And no, no, no. And so Luton said, okay, I, I won't move up to the A-list. So that's why he stayed down in the B-list, because he was being loyal. Unfortunately, later on, sad to say, when Robeson was well-established and Luton was uh, at loose ends and trying to 
finally get a career that he wanted, being able to do these really good pictures, um, Robeson and Mar Robert Wise, who was another Luton director, formed a production company, and they were going to do films their way. They wanted to make films about social issues, and I mean, they had good intentions, and they, I think it was called Alpine Productions, and they uh, were going to have Luton come in, and Luton, being the producer, was saying, okay, uh, they're going, well, we want to get money to make this film about, I forget what it was. It was it's something to do about, about segregation. It was a film about segregation. But it wasn't like, it wasn't going to be starring Gregory Peck in a story. It was like going to be a real, the real film they wanted to make. And he says, well, no one's going to give you the money because this is not going to be a hit. And they know it. And they're, they're like, oh, but, the, you know, even if it takes us years. We he says, well, why don't we just make a fun film? I've got a great idea for some B-list films, we can make a bunch of money, and then you can just make the film you want, because you'll have your own money. You can do whatever you want, doesn't matter. And they just couldn't see it. And so they booted Val Luton. Day of his daughter's wedding, they oh, had wow. delivered to him notice that he'd been booted out of the company. Oh my God. I know. Jerks. I know. And this is, so, I know, really. I mean, who knows? Maybe there were other elements, and Val Luton might have been being impossible, because this was near the end of his life. Maybe he, being ill, he was just irascible and terrible. I don't know. Because basically what he finally said was, okay, if that's how you want to do it, fine. And they said, even though you said you would agree to it, we know you were never going to let it go. Yeah, so they booted him out after that kind of loyalty. So I, I find that hard. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. I think later they may have reconciled with him and you know, apologized or felt bad. But that's why he ended up having to be a journeyman of doing productions at a bunch of different studios because he didn't have a specific studio he was with anymore. And that's what he had been hoping for. So that was terrible. But here he's, you know, he's, he's bringing, he was a real mentor and he brought Mark Robeson up and said, you can direct. And Mark Robeson is no uh, Jacques Tourneur. He's a fine director, perfectly acceptable. But I don't think he could really like tap into Luton's synapses in the same way. And they didn't connect in the same way. So we're into good films now, not into masterpieces. But we're still in phase one because we're still at the top of Val Luton's production. And this is kind of why I think he's not the very best director, certainly for what Val Luton was doing. Because I think probably his most famous film is Valley of the Dolls. Have you seen Valley of the Dolls? No, I think Oh my seen... God, we have to watch Valley of the Dolls. We watched Return of the Valley of the Dolls? Yeah, that was written by Roger Ebert, and that was, yeah, that okay. was very different. Very different, because Valley of the Dolls really was an A-list film out of a totally trashy novel by Jacqueline Suzanne about drug-taking and starlets in Hollywood. Oh my God, I, I have missed out on your film education. You have <laughs> got to see this. I've seen it a couple of times. And I saw a stage, um, a stage adaptation well, back when Seattle off... Tough Broadway, Seattle. But the, the small playhouses, local, were really good. And this was great. This is just a great little adaptation of Valley of the Dolls where the main model, Neely O'Hare, I think her name is, um, is played by a guy. Oh. And so, um, and I don't, I, I don't know what the specific, you know, whether the, this person was transgender or whether they were, and doing a great job. I mean, not, not trying to make fun or anything. But it just gave a whole twist to mm -hmm. the whole thing, you know? Anyway, he, he directed Valley of the Dolls and Von Ryan's Express, Peyton Place. I mean, this guy, you know, he moved into A-list, but this was trashy A-list. So, <laughs> to Mark Robson. <laughs> but he did, he did a very serviceable job, and he picked up a lot of the stylistic tips from Turner. He just never really, like we were saying, he never pulls you down into feeling like you're in the unconscious. 
So the Leopard Man, Leopard Man was 1943. So let me go over the years again. Camp People was in 42. Then Walk with the Zombies, 43. Leopard Man, the Leopard Man is 43. Seventh Victim is 43. The Ghost Ship is 43. So Dang. basically, they churn out four films. Luton produces uh, four films in, in one year. That's three months of film. And that's really good. I mean, I mean, and they're all really good. Not great, but good. So essentially, the Leopard Man, okay, my idea of what the theme might be is it's sort of like the other gender to the cat people. That it is it about the, the power of, and animalism of male sexuality. Sort of the, in a way, the consuming of male sexuality and the fear of unfettered male sexuality. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like it's right there, but it also captures it on a, another level. Um, the the plot of the movie is that there is a killer leopard on the loose that murders only, well, not only women, but it murders mostly beautiful young women. Well, well, okay. What it is is, now, first of all, this is not a person turning into a leopard. And that's what they wanted. And that's what he did not do. I think purposely. I think he knew this. Oh, yeah, totally. shoved him into this. And so... What, what it is is a leopard, dynamite, gets out and kills this man. And then a serial killer, met man, serial killer, kills women. And that's why after that it's only women who die. He kills women who are uh, accessible and he marks them as if it's a leopard. He, takes, he gets like the leopard's claws and he claws them with this claw after he's killed them. And that is his, his way of trying to implicate the leopard as as the culprit when in fact it isn't whether in fact it's so it's one of the first serial killer movies if not the first well in america maybe in germany there was a movie called m about a serial child murderer starring peter laurie just pretty good movie it's really, Fritz Lang, right? yeah really good movie just fyi there's a, a scene where uh, peter laurie gets thrown down the stairs and he really had to do it and hurt his back Mm. And then, they, of course, what they do is they just give people, like, morphine and stuff, and he became a dra- drug addict from that. Oh, God, that's brutal. Isn't that sad? I like Peter Laurie a lot. Apparently, he was a really, really nice man, even though he always played, like, a really scary, creepy guy. And uh, so I heard this story somewhere. Um, like, if he would, like, go out to eat with people, and, and he was, like, just really nice. And if he didn't think they left enough tip for the, the server, he would, like, go back after everybody left the table, and he'd, sho- and he'd shove some more money on the table. That's a very sweet story. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you know, if you think back, I I can't think of, and maybe there is one, but this is one of the first uh, serial killer movies in in America. Essentially, the story is that there is a a rivalry between uh, two singers, and the uh, the one is called Cloclo. I love that name. She's great. Too. I she's love like a flamenco-y kind of. Yeah, she's showy. The best uh, character in the whole film, in my opinion. And then there's Kiki, who's her rival. And Kiki um, is uh, her her manager, who pl- is played by Dennis O'Keefe. If any of you know who he is, um, Dennis O'Keefe is just like one of those guys. You're like, how did he ever make it? I mean, he's tall, but he's not really even very good looking, and he's not really talented. But okay, enough said. Anyway, Dennis O'Keefe plays her manager, and he decides he's going to get her bouncer up above Clo-Clo, so he gets a leopard. He rents rent a leopard, 
and he uh, puts it on a leash and he has her appear in public with this leopard on the leash and everybody's like, oh, ah. And actually, actresses did actually do this kind of thing. Literally, they really did at this time. Before animal rights were (laughs) discussed very much. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or safety issues about the this wild animal could hurt somebody. Anyway, so what happens is is she goes out and she does this at uh, a performance of Clo-Clo to upstage her while she's dancing. And Clo-Clo, in reaction, she's got castanets and she's singing and dancing. And then she, she, with the castanets really fast and she comes at the at panther. It isn't really a leopard, it's a panther. But anyway, so she, and the leopard freaks out and breaks away and runs off. And then later they find a girl mauled to death. Then what ensues is several murders of, of women, women only, at least up until the very last scene where there's a, a man who dies. Beautiful but young women. Beautiful young women who are kind of alone, available for being gotten. And they end up being mauled to death. And Dennis O'Keefe and also Kiki, begin to suspect that it isn't the leopard that's doing this, that there is someone who is making the marks of the leopard, but is really a serial killer murdering women. Which is complicated by this local mythology of a leopard man. He becomes a leopard at night and kills young women. So there's the mythology folktale element to it too. Which in a way kind of happens because the serial killer does imitate uh, the marks of a leopard, even though he doesn't physically turn into a leopard. But that's how they get the leopard man in there, is right. that, yeah. Also, the leopard man could have been the guy who owned it. Right. He's the, the leopard man. In fact, I think they call him that, which is very hilarious. So the key, uh, the key thing here is, and then eventually they do find out it is a, a man who's been going around with these claws that he took off a leopard that he killed, and he's killing the women and then scratching them to death. And this has some really good scenes. Again, overall, it doesn't have the power of the other two films, but some very good scary scenes. For me, it has the sequence that is the most frightening in it, Mm -hmm. where uh, it's the first murder and the girl is walking home in the dark and she she doesn't want to go under this bridge, but then she has to to get home and she goes under it and that's when she gets killed by the leopard. But that, that sequence for me... It doesn't have the psychological, it doesn't have the depth or the undertones to it, but it's really tense and scary. It is, because it's, I mean, if you've ever gone out at night, night. (laughs) yeah, and and like, mm, it's all dark and, you know, uh, it's scary. Should Mm -hmm. I go there? And also, knowing that there's a leopard out there, and and she's scared to go out, and her mother boots her out and says, you need to get cornmeal for your father's dinner, and and her mother's really mean. She runs home. She doesn't get killed under the bridge. She runs home, and her mom keeps her locked out, and then her blood runs under the door. Yeah, very good, yeah. The futility of it. And then the mother's sorry. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd let you in. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Even without the cornmeal. All the murder scenes are really good. There, mm-hmm. There's a murder in a cemetery. But it's always the lonely place and the and the defenseless woman. And It very much does have, even though there's no sexual violence in it at all, it really has undertones of that. It feels that way. Yeah, because that's his purpose. Is He's looking for women to dominate. It's um, something that we see develop more fully in movies going forward ad nauseum. Right. But what's great about this film is, first of all, the women characters and the women who are killed are not just of the, what is it, the, the woman in the refrigerator? The girlfriend, girlfriend in, in the, the refrigerator. Yeah, yeah, the girlfriend in the fridge. They're not that kind of character. They really are people who are caught. They've made choices, and then they're caught in their circumstances, and they do resist, and they do, you know, they do have a, a weight and a personhood that 
doesn't make this just a kill fest. So I, I like that a lot. Um, like the young girl, you, she really is a specific young girl. And the, and the woman who's waiting for her boyfriend in the cemetery for a, a tryst and gets locked in behind the walls, mm-hmm. she really, she's made a decision to be there and, and, and made a mistake. And then... And we've actually followed her for actually a significant yeah. portion of the film, too. He spends a lot of time with those characters, right. relatively speaking. And, and Clo-Clo gets killed ultimately. And Clo-Clo, we really get to know Clo-Clo, love Clo-Clo. I mean, she's just snapping and sassy and she's got a little girl. And so she's, she's out there hustling, trying to get money. And so they do indicate that she probably does sleep with men for favors and for, for money, but she's trying to get shoes. Isn't it shoes for her little girl? Something like that. Yeah, some money. And you see her, you know, uh, going to see her daughter after work. So they make her almost unlikable at first, but mm-hmm. then he really opens it up and you see her vulnerability and her, you know, how much she loves her daughter and like... Well, and, and, and her aggression okay. comes out of survival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even her, her battle with Kiki. Kiki's Kiki's a little better off. Kiki has kind of come into... Because we're down in Mexico, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So Kiki, who's an American, has come onto her turf mm-hmm. and is probably usurping her business you know, by getting her, uh, the people to go to her show instead of Clo-Clo's show. Yeah, that, that it has um, a lot of little moments like that that, again, deal with um, sort of colonial oppression that I appreciate. The, the man who owns the leopard, the other leopard man, he gets put in jail and he's suspected and he's Mexican. And I felt that in that moment. And then there's the real leopard man who is a curator, he's a white man who's the curator of a museum of like Mexican artifacts and stuff. Who's actually the serial killer. Right. Yeah, so uh, I think it's very lively, it's fun, and and, uh, I do enjoy those characters a lot. There's not as much to talk about. It doesn't have, it isn't as layered. Again, like I was saying, why I thought so was lack of turner. But still, very enjoyable, very top-level Luton. I do want to just have a little side note, as I like to have, about the characters in the film. And, and I wanted to talk about Clo-Clo. And Clo-Clo is played by a one-named actor named Margot, sort of like uh, Cher and Madonna. So this is Margot. And Margot was a very famous Mexican-American actress and dancer. And she ended up marrying a... I can't believe who she all she married. She was married to this actor named Francis Letterer, who uh, was very, very handsome guy, super handsome guy, and who ended up um, becoming like the head of, of some studio or something, a very rich man. And then she was married to Eddie Albert. And Eddie Albert was an Academy Award winning film actor. So she married him, and their child, Eddie Albert Jr., also became a very famous actor on TV. And if anybody ever watched the show Green Acres, that was her son. And then he had a child, and if you ever saw the movie, Butterflies Are Free, the guy who starred in that was her grandson. There you go, it's a dynasty. So if you like old movies, uh, and you like these old actors and stuff, then you will really like, uh, it's just a cool, I just think it's a really cool cool thing. Edward Albert is is the guy in Butterflies Are Free. So you've got Eddie Albert. Eddie Albert Jr., Edward Albert Jr., and Edward Albert. <laughs> All Edwards, anyway. So that was good. Okay, sorry. I had to, I got off on Clo-Clo there. But that was a real, real fun little dive into her life. Anyway, she was really amazing. But unfortunately, 
uh, you know, they again, tried to make her a star, tried to be a Hollywood star, just couldn't push it over. It's just too bad. Okay, so next film is Seventh Victim. Now, I think uh, we need to, to say that uh, Luton often used the same actors repeatedly. And in Leopard Man, so the Kiki character was played by Jean Brooks, and she was a kind of blonde, kind of curlyish hair, um, very stridey and, you know, vivacious. So in Seventh Victim, she is again the star, and she is the seventh victim. She's silent, pale, and they have this amazing, heavy, dark black wig with a blunt cut. I mean, it's a really stark hairpiece, isn't it? I mean, you don't forget that. And it really contrasts with her extremely pale face. This film is, I would say the theme is Thanatos. And Thanatos is sort of the being drawn to the abyss, your, your death wish, if you will, the ultimate death wish in everybody. And the, and the, the inefficacy of fighting against Thanatos. Because this, this is really an existential film. Yeah, I mean, I'm really surprised. This is the one that I'm most surprised that he made, that I don't know if it was popular or not, but that it could be commercially successful in any way. Yeah, it, it, it's amazing. I think all of, all of his films uh, to this point are commercially successful. They're, they're not the, the first two were big hits. And then they, the rest, they continued to make money, but they weren't the same uh, you know, intense level of success. Because again, he's pushing it, pushing it quite a bit. And this, in this one, basically, there is a cosmetics firm run by the Jean Brooks character, the seventh victim, and she kind of disappears. Her sister is at a boarding school, rarely ever sees her. All of a sudden, the payments to the boarding school have stopped, and they pull her aside and say, hey, you can't stay here. You don't get paid, but you can you could stay as, as a teacher, as an assistant teacher or something. And she says, no, no, I need to go to New York and find my sister. So then she steps into it. Then she steps into a world of, uh, of mystery and intrigue where she can't find her sister. And then her sister suddenly appears at the door one day and is beckoning to her. And, and the people are chasing her. And, and I don't know. This she's, is a complicated one. Yeah, she's on a, a subway train. And yeah, she's being followed. And she befriends a detective. But they never so, really figured out. So ultimately what ha- so there's a lot of stuff that happens, but ultimately what we get to is there is a cult and it's a witches a coven and they all look like regular people, you know. Probably one of the first cult horror movies or Probably, yeah, good point. In the US anyway. Yeah, good yeah. point. Uh, and so they meet and what happens is is that she wanted out and she they felt that she was betraying them. And so they were trying to psychologically force her into committing suicide because they didn't believe in killing people, but they would like like psychologically torture you until you committed suicide. Now, what's interesting about this character is she always was kind of suicidal because she had this special room that she rented. And it was just like a, a room in a boarding house and she paid every month. And when they finally broke into it to see what was in there, there was just a chair and a noose hanging above the chair and she would just go in there and spend time and leave so it was really her sort of existential exploration it's a really weird and very striking like it really like gets to you in my opinion but yeah there's no furniture in there no nothing except for the chair and the noose and I think the character says at one point she's like 
I just like having it there so that I know that I can do it at any time. Right. Something like that. People preference this all the time and it's so annoying, but I'm going to do it anyway. It's like Chekhov's gun where you bring it up, you show it to the audience, then nothing happens. And then the final act, the gun has to be fired. So the noose has to be popped at the end. And, and what's interesting too about the, about the rooming house is in the room next door is a dying woman. Looks like she's probably dying maybe of tuberculosis. She's very wan and pale and she's always been a good time girl. Maybe it's VD. Maybe they mean to make it to be about venereal disease, but they couldn't say it at the time. Uh, anyway, she's dying and she knows she's dying and she doesn't want to die. And then there's this very healthy woman, physically healthy, who's just always skipping around the border of suicide. Does she really want to live? And um, So they contrast the two of them yeah, to very good effect. right next door to each other, which is very, yeah, very good effect. So that's really, again, the meat of the story. And then gliding along the top, there's like this love story. Ugh, I hate this love story. Yeah. Where she, her husband, the, the Brooks's husband, he cares for her, but he's not really in love with her anymore. And she's like too crazy or whatever. They're just they're just not meant to be. So he meets her sister who, what, she's got, since she was still in school, she's about 17 or 18 maybe, maybe 18. Let's say it's given the benefit of the doubt. She yeah. looks like she's 18. And he's, what, 30 uh, and uh, maybe older? Anyway, he's in love with her. He's like, <sighs> yeah. It's before this point, all the love stories that Luton did, whether they, they might not have been very deep or anything, but they were very, like, wholesome and very sincere, you know? Yeah. And this one just really falls apart i know it's terrible and what's weird is so the husband is played by an actor hugh beaumont who ultimately makes his fame on the tv series leave it to beaver as beaver cleaver's father who is like the 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 quintessential middle class suburban family so he's like the ideal dad and uh, so that's that's how he ends up making his fame. And he plays the husband in this one. So for me, it was weird seeing him there. Also in this story is uh, the psychologist, again, Tom Conway. Again, makes another appearance. Our, our fr- alcoholic friend, Tom Conway, was a terrible alcoholic and was terribly ill. Oh, poor Tom Conway. Tom Conway, as I said, brother of George Sanders in the previous episode, um, George Sanders was a very famous A-list actor. Tom Conway was the B-list. George uh, got him into Hollywood, got him his help, get him his jobs. And what's so interesting is George Sanders at one time was married to a, a sort of really a personality named Jaja Gabor. Anybody should, hopefully you've heard of her. Anyway, she was really only nominally really an actor but she was uh, a big personality and she was a difficult person a, a wild person and she and her brother-in-law got along so well tom conway just appreciated her he loved her independence and her fieriness and and she did not get along with her husband and when tom conway was dying of alcoholism she like paid for his rent and stuff and supported Aww. him it was very sweet okay but anyway tom still still tall straight able to deliver his lines, handsome. So we still have Tom for a little while. He plays the psych- uh, the psychiatrist who is investigating this. And Jean Brooks' character is his uh, patient. And so she's in hiding from these coven people. And so he's hiding her at a sanitarium and later in an apartment. And um, he won't even tell the husband where she is. So that's weird. And then the psychiatrist has a younger brother who's a ne'er-do-well poet well, who had been a great poet for one book and then 
his inspiration dried up, who falls in love with the sister as well. Yeah, very weird. As we talk about it, it's quite convoluted. It's very convoluted. It doesn't really hang together at all. So I'm, I might change my opinion about which one should be number three. But yeah. I like it a lot. I mean, I really like watching it if you just yeah. go with it. But it, it has a lot of moving parts, which make it cool and interesting. But it, they, they don't all cohere. Like the way they did in I Walk with a Zombie, everything kind of connects together. Mm-hmm. It all is of a piece. Yeah. And so a lot of this stuff isn't of a piece. It is funny that... Uh, uh, all this is going on around this this young woman who's, you know, she's she's like normally good looking, but her performance is terrible. And the interesting thing is, is that this is the first movie role of Kim Hunter, and Kim Hunter is a is going to be better known to you as Stella in A Streetcar Named Desire. She played that role on Broadway, and then she um, uh, ended up being in the film version. But this is her first film, hmm. and she's stiff and terrible really in it. And the reason is, is that she was warned, taken aside more, to be careful about not being too big on film because she's from the stage and not gesticulating too much or being too big. But she didn't really, I don't think she got very good coaching because she ended up doing way too little and because she was afraid of doing too much. So maybe we should talk about a couple of the most memorable scenes. Obviously the chair and noose is the most memorable scene, but there's another one that's on the subway that's really creepy, where she yes. she's running away from the two men that are following her. Yes. And there had been a discovery of a dead body related to the plot in some way. And uh, and she's lo- she maybe she's looking for that guy, and she gets on the bus, and there are these two threatening men in trench coats, hats, etc., and a third man between them, and they're, like, supporting him on, like, maybe he's stone drunk or something. Uh, and they sit across from her, and they just look at her, and then she realizes that the man in between them is dead. And he's the dead man that she had, well, she had gone with a private detective to try to find her sister. And the detective ended up being stabbed and comes. he came stumbling out. And now she looks up on the train on the subway. I, I think it's a subway. I think it's a subway. And she looks up and she sees that it is that very dead private detective between these two men. Freaks her out. Now, in that scene, if you look behind carefully, there's a couple in the right-hand corner. And if you look at that, the woman in there is... Barbara Hale, a.k.a. Della Street from Perry Mason. And you, if you have been paying attention to the podcast over a length of time, you should know how much we love Perry Mason and Barbara Hale especially. Yes. So just a little aside there. So that's a very scary, very scary scene. They really, they, they nail it on that. And they're very, they're very good scenes. They're just, they're just never quite as good as the prior ones, but they're very good scenes. There's a lot, and there, again, there's a lot of women walking alone in the dark being pursued by like a slow pursuer and yeah it's, it's always very creepy but yeah exactly and oh, the other really good scene is a scene where Jean Brooks is in a room she's forced to sit in a chair by the coven and they're all around her and they just sit there and stare at her and say drink it kill yourself it's a glass of poison and drink it drink it you know you want to die she's like no no I don't want to die no if I want to die I want to do it in my own time blah 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 and so and she's thirsty so there's no food or drink and she's sitting there so it's very psychological torture so finally this woman who used to who's part of the coven and used to work with her uh, can't stand it anymore and she knocks the poison over just as she's about to take it and drink it and she begs her not to do it and tells her how good she was to her and this brings up the issue of the sort of latent lesbian themes in this, in this film. One of the major characters in The Coven who takes over Jean Brooks's business, basically, uh, and, and she's part of The Coven, 
she codes very much of the time as lesbian. She's kind of quote unquote mannish. And um, so that would have been at that time would have been um, seen as symbolic of her being a lesbian, even though nothing specific is ever said or shown. And also a lot of people have interpreted this, this young woman who knocks the glass over and is weeping and don't do it and as actually uh, they're, they're having a lesbian relationship, her and Jean Brooks, that they were connected together in that way and that she loves her and pities her and doesn't want her to die. So um, they, they mentioned that, um, that there's a lot of that interpretation, subtext, yeah. subtext going mm-hmm. on in there. I didn't know if you, I didn't interpret it that way until I read it. And I went, yeah, okay, I can see that. I picked up on it a little bit and some of her interactions with the main character girl as well. Sorry for all the exposition, but clearly we have to do it because this movie is so It's complicated. And- well, and the other thing is, is she doesn't get along very well with her husband. And so in a way, if she's a lesbian, it leaves him free to be okay to fall in love with the sister. That exonerates him in a way. I, I can definitely see it. You know, and also remember Val Luton's aunt was oh, that's true. a serious lesbian. Good point. And so, you know, he would have been totally okay with that, but he wouldn't have ever been able to do it overtly. Anyway, we, we like this one. It doesn't hold together, even though it is a, it is a good exploration of existentialism. It's, it's like a potent, it's potent in its juxtapositions and sort of mo- in a montage kind of way, like rather than in a cohesive film and also, yeah and also the ending is is very intense where uh she does i think obviously kill herself and she goes into that room and closes the door and you hear the chair drop and then out from the other room comes the dying woman all dressed up and fancy and she's going to go out for one last toot you know she's she she says until she dies she is going to live it's good it's interesting mm-hmm. something to chew on I did want to point out that there is one uh, part in here. There's a restaurant, an Italian restaurant that they always go to. And there's a chef who's an Italian guy. And what's interesting is that he really was an Italian chef in real life. And his name was Chef Milani. And just like Chef Boyardee, who we know today, he had a whole line of consumer products for Chef Milani, which is no longer a thing, I guess. Although maybe there is a Milani and it just isn't called Chef Milani, like Milani noodles. Anyway, that was his which I thought he that just was made cool. a cameo. Yeah. I also want to point out that Tom Conway plays the psychiatrist in this. And he's really just sort of more, he's like Basil Exposition in this. He just sort of like explains things. He doesn't really do a lot. And he interacts with his brother as a subplot. Anyway, his name in this is uh, Norman Judd. And his name in Cat People was Norman Judd. Oh, really? Yeah. I that. Yeah, I know. That's funny. Because they don't really harp on it at all. So it's really kind of funny how they pull the, the whole universe. The throwback, yeah. The, the, the Luton-verse together. <laughs> Thanks for listening. We're talking a lot here, giving you a lot of details. Hopefully you've watched these movies, so you're following along and you've got some opinions. And Remember, we have an email address, foiblespodcast at gmail.com. And, you know, tell us what you think of the movies. What's your favorite? We'd be happy to hear about it and get your opinion on on the themes and ideas and the acting. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand